Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Have you ever had an unfulfilled expectation? Have you ever been uh, anticipating a certain response, maybe from a boss or your parents or even your spouse, and they don't respond the way you were expecting or maybe hoping, right? Have you ever expected maybe a certain gift for Christmas? You know, you're hoping that's what's under the tree, You're hoping this will happen. I remember this several times as a kid. And when you open the gift, not only is not what you were hoping for, it's not even comparable to what you were hoping for. It's disappointing, right? Well, as we uh, as a congregation have discussed many times, the expectation for the Jews in the first century, their expectation of Messiah was a promised deliverer. It was somebody who was going to come and in a sense as a political leader, rescue the people from captivity, establish a real tangible earthly kingdom. The kingdom would be the fulfillment of all of their expectations and it would free them from captivity, from the tyranny of these empires that had ruled for the last five centuries or more. The expectation largely, this expectation caused the Jewish population to reject Jesus as Messiah. Why? Because he didn't fit that. The expectation for a Messiah is that he needs to be alive. Jesus died. And so for them, that doesn't fit the expectation. It doesn't fit what they're anticipating from Messiah. And so they denied him. They denied their promised deliverer because he didn't fit their expectation. Now, what I want you to note is Peter is going to directly confront their expectation and he's going to take the events that we discussed for the last two weeks in verses 1 through 13 and he's going to connect them to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. So here's what we're going to see today. And I hope, I hope you catch this. I hope you can track with Peter's argument. All right? Because Jesus is Lord and Messiah, you must trust him alone to save you from your sin. He's our only hope. This is Peter's point as we walk through this. Now, Remember, as we engage this book, we introduced it several weeks ago. This is the second longest book in our New Testament. The first longest book is Luke's Gospel. So Luke writes the Gospel, and then he writes this follow-up, the continuing story, we could say, of all that, as he describes at the beginning of Acts, Jesus began to do and to teach. This is that ongoing work through the power of the Spirit, in the lives of his followers. And that story truthfully continues to today, in our lives, as we follow Jesus, right? 
The theme throughout is that you will receive power from the Holy Ghost and you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And remember, that is not contrived. It's not the disciples, the apostles don't begin a program. If you note, there's no programmatic work that goes on. They are going about their everyday life. They are celebrating a normal feast that has been celebrated amongst the Jews for centuries. They're in the midst of that first day of that celebration, that feast. And the Spirit of God comes in power. It's obvious. It's evident. And Peter's now going to stand up and he's going to explain that. The structure of the book is the apostles will be witnesses in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7. Witnesses in Samaria and Judea, chapters 8 to 12. And witnesses to the ends of the earth, chapter 13 to 28. That's, that's the whole book in a nutshell, in essence. So again, as we walk through this today, I want you to note with me. Because Jesus is Lord and Messiah, you and I must... Trust Him alone to save us from our sins. Now the first thing that Peter is going to do is he's going to connect the miraculous works that they have just witnessed in verses 1 through 13. He's going to connect those as the fulfillment of prophecy. God just fulfilled His word. God just did what He promised to do in your midst. Here's how. So as Peter begins, and one of the things that's interesting to note is Peter stands and there's almost as if there's this audience, this gang behind him of the 11, right? Peter stands, but the 11 are there with him. And he'll reference him and them before he's done. But they're together collectively. Peter offers this pointed defense and in some ways, again, I started out with this a little bit, but this sermon is masterful. I mean, it is just incredible the way Peter works them through in explaining God's truth and how God's truth relates to them today right where they are. And this is why I think there's the response in verses 37 and following. It's because of God's spirit at work through the word and it impacts the hearer. That's what's supposed to happen, right? So as Peter begins, he starts, he calls this group to attention in verse 14. Again, note this, he'll do it four times. And he gives kind of a little different uh, description each time. The first one, though, men of Judea and all who dwell in Israel, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. Peter is literally saying to them, listen to me. I'm going to explain what you just saw. I'm going to clarify what you just witnessed. Now remember, what's just happened? The Spirit of God has come. He's come in such a way that there's a loud noise. The noise is heard. The tongues, right? These tongues of fire, which in our minds, what's going on with that? Well, uh, you know, we can't totally explain all that. But those tongues of fire are there and they speak known languages. Literally, the word for language there is the word that we get our word dialect from. These are known languages. So they're speaking known languages, people from all over the place. And remember two weeks ago, we looked at that map. From Rome down into Africa and over uh, into uh, the Persia area, all of that. 
modern-day Turkey. There's people from all of those locations. They all hear in their own language. Now, did they have to speak in a foreign language for them to understand? No. Peter did not get up and speak this message in tongues. He speaks it in the known language, likely Aramaic or Greek. Peter delivers this message, one language, everyone understands. What's the purpose of the tongue then? It's a sign. It's evidence. It's a tangible demonstration of God's work among them. And Peter's going to make that connection in a second. So verses 15 and 16, the first thing that he does, remember we have our scoffers, our skeptics in verse 13, and what do they say? Man, these people are drunk. These people are filled with with wine. So Peter first addresses that, and it's interesting. In some ways, it's, it's great the way he says this, right? For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Why? It's only the third hour of the day. You know what that means? Peter literally says, guys, come on, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. And that would especially be the case at this period, this time, because at a festival like this, oftentimes, They would fast from food or drink until 10 or maybe as late as noon. So in some respects, that's also why Peter's saying, come on, everybody knows we don't even eat till 10. We don't even eat till noon on a day like this. Of course they're not drunk. That's absurd. He goes on and he says, but this is what, this is what was uttered. This is what's explained by the prophet Joel. Now you remember this, we just had it read. Verses 17 and 18, the first thing, the first part of this explains the day. The second part of this is yet to be fulfilled. Now, some of what we don't have time to address today is a prophecy like this and its fulfillment going forward. What we do have time today is to connect the piece that I think Peter is connecting. The piece that Peter wants us to understand. So verse 17, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares. So in the last days, there's something coming. Now, for us, we hear that, we kind of think of that as a New Testament phrase. But I don't know that we always understand that is not a a New Testament phrase. It doesn't begin in the New Testament. This is something that comes to us from the Old Testament. There's this expectation of a future period coming. There's there's this time coming, these future days. Now in Joel, as Joel describes this, Joel has been talking about discussing the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has two pieces in view uh, throughout the Old Testament. Number one, it's a day of judgment. Number two, It's a day of salvation. Now, do both of those occur in this scenario? No, not necessarily. But the day of salvation, I think, is in view in this context. And I think that's why Peter brings this out. So look at what he says in the rest. He says, so what's going to happen? I'm going to pour my spirit out on all flesh. And then he's going to give some specifics. It's going to be poured out on sons, daughters, and they're going to prophesy. Young men, they'll see visions. Old men, they'll dream dreams. Uh, Even male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. All of these. Now, several things that are interesting. Number one, twice he says what? I'll pour out my spirit. Who will pour out his spirit? God. 
God will pour out his spirit. God is going to do this. Peter quotes this from Joel, and Joel said, God is going to do this. Now, this is very, very important because this text is going to lay the foundation for the connection Peter is going to make to Jesus. Okay? So it's critical that we see this is a description of God. Peter has not brought Jesus into this discussion yet. And that's imperative for this reason. The Jews that he's talking to and Peter, they would have one thing in common. They both believe the word of God. They both believe it's true. Now, they might interpret it differently, right? But that's why Peter is laying this groundwork. He's laying out the case. Now, the second thing that's interesting here is this description is all-encompassing. It's all-inclusive. There are men, there are ladies, there are poor, there are wealthy. It's described in the Old Testament, the greatest and the least, the most significant one and the most insignificant one. It's going to impact all of them. That's the description given to us here by Joel as Peter quotes it. Now in verses 19 and 20, the specifics there, those are the future aspect. That, that is it fulfilled on this day. And you can see that as he lays it out. There will be wonders. I'll show wonders in the heavens, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, a vapor of smoke. None of that happens. None of that occurs. But what does happen? Verses 17 and 18, that happens. He poured out his spirit, and these people are prophesying. And remember, remember, oftentimes we discuss tongues. We think tongues is something that I am declaring or using to declare the gospel. But in truth, throughout Acts, and remember it only happens three times, what is it that they declare? The miraculous works, the miraculous truth of God. Now, does that mean that that can't connect to the gospel? No, not necessarily. Of course not. But what is true is it's not necessarily used for declaring the gospel. It is merely a sign. It's merely an evidence. It's a miracle that people look at and say, oh, that had to come from God. That's the distinction. It's important that we understand that. So they are prophesying all, all of these. And remember, I think it's fascinating as we sing this morning the resurrection hymn. Verse 2, see Mary weeping. Where is he laid, right? And then she hears the voice. It's the voice of the master. Now think this through for a moment. If you remember back in chapter 1, there's actually 120 that are gathered. And early on in chapter 1, he tells us the women that are there. Guess who very likely was one of those women? The mother of Jesus' name. But there are several women that follow Jesus that are with him as he goes to Jerusalem, even as he dies. And then they go to the tomb and then they follow him for a period after. And those women are recorded as being with the apostles. They're part of that group of 120. Very likely, Mary is part of this group and testifies, speaks as one of the ladies, speaks the truth of God in a foreign tongue. I mean, think about that. Right? I mean... This is, this is pretty incredible, you know. So, 1920, not, not fulfilled. Okay, 21, look at what he says. 
And this is in some ways, this is going to be a critical connection. Verse 21. He says, and it shall come to pass that, this sounds very much like Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is, again, a direct quote from Joel. He's finishing this quotation. Now, when he gives this quote, when he makes this statement, there's no Jew in the audience that can say, no, I don't agree with that. No, I don't like that. No, that's not true. Why? He just quotes what Joel says. Joel says, if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be delivered. You will be rescued. You will be saved. And so for them, as they hear that, they're saying, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we agree with that. But Peter doesn't stop there. Peter, instead, he makes this critical transition. He makes this critical connection that is fascinating. In a sense, the invitation, the offer is given here. But Peter's going to make the connection to Jesus many verses later as he concludes down in verse 36. So this is a common call. Nobody's struggling with this in the audience. Now Peter makes a turn. He almost as if seems to change the subject. Look what he says again in verse 22. Again, he brings them back. Men of Israel, again, hey, don't, don't leave me. Stay with me. Are you still here? Right? This is what Peter's doing, you know. Are you sleeping? Hopefully not. Hopefully nobody's asleep yet. So men of Israel, hear these words. Now it seems like he just changed the subject. Jesus of Nazareth. Well, listen, we're fine with you talking about the prophecy of God from Joel. We, we get that. We appreciate that, but why are we coming now to Jesus? And that's Peter's point. That's what's so masterful in this sermon is that Peter introduces the work of God in Joel, but then he's going to make a connection to Jesus as Messiah, and even more than that, as Lord. So look at where he begins again. This is a man who is attested. The idea of being attested here is to make clearly known. Peter's argument is God very clearly made known to every one of you who Jesus really was. Through signs, through miracles, through these wonders that he did while he was on earth. He uses three words and stacks them together on purpose. Why? He's making the point. You saw. You know what he did. It, it, it's clear you can't get away from it. And in response to all that Jesus did, all of this evidence, and if you don't see all that evidence as evidence, go read the Gospel of John this week. That's John's whole point. John's almost arguing like a lawyer. Here are signs, here are speeches, here is proof. This is the argument. This is Peter's argument. Here's the proof. Now, what did you do? What did you do with the proof? You actually turned him over to wicked men. You turned him over to Rome. You turned him over to Pilate, to Herod. And these wicked men killed him. But, but, don't worry. That was the plan all along. 
right? I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. As Peter's talking, he says, listen, you turned him over to be killed. But listen, don't feel bad. (laughs) That was the plan. This was God's design. God planned for him to die all along. And he planned for him to die for this reason, so he could raise him from the dead. Now, do you see where resurrection begins to come into view? This is critical. And here's the other piece of this. As much as the authorities would have liked to keep Jesus' resurrection under wraps, as much as they would like to have made that reality, that truth, go away, it was a reality. And this group, largely, they had heard about it. They knew about it. Even if they were struggling to accept it or buy it, should we say, they they had heard about this reality. Now, Peter's going to make a second connection. The miraculous work, the, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, actually, that was also prophesied. Now, here's what's important. Remember, where does he begin with them? Scripture. God foretold this would happen with the Holy Spirit, right? But now he says, God also foretold that this would happen with Jesus. Look at again verses 25 and following. And again, this is a quote from Psalm 16. Peter ascribes this to David. And again, if you look at the end of this, and he quotes verses 8 to 11 there, but the end of this, verse 27, he says, For he will not abandon my soul in Hades. David's the author, you assume, that as David writes, he's talking about himself. He's saying, God's not going to leave me in the grave. But then he goes on and he says, Or let your Holy One. So he moves from first person to second person. He's talking about somebody else. Your Holy One see corruption. Now, what I love is the practical way Peter comes back and says, here's what this passage means. Now watch this. Look at what he says in verse 29. Third time, different description. Brothers, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, for a moment, if you think about this, you have old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem. New Jerusalem very likely is where they're standing. It's kind of been rebuilt over time. David would have been buried a little ways away. And who knows? Peter may well have said, And we know where David's buried. It's right that way. You can go visit his grave today. And it's undisturbed. He's still in it. You see see Peter's point, right? This isn't about David. This can't be a prophecy about David. He goes on, look what he says. Being therefore a prophet. Who's a prophet? David's a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So in some respects, Peter's explaining this. He's saying for David, David is told in 2 Samuel 7, you will always have a descendant on the throne. This is my 
blessing, my commitment to you. And so maybe David, as he writes, is thinking, I'll kind of be living forever, or I'll have a descendant on the throne, or, or I won't see corruption in the sense that I'll always have an heir. I'll always have a descendant on the throne. And then he says, verse 31, for he, David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In a sense, what Peter does is say, do you see what, do you see what David was actually telling you in advance? Jesus was not going to see corruption. Jesus would not be in the grave long enough to decay, not even a little bit. Jesus was raised on the third day, and because he was raised on the third day, this passage, Psalm 16, it's fulfilled. It was fulfilled in your lifetime. Can you see this? I mean, can, do you understand what David was telling you? Right? I'm, I'm not certain, but I, I think Peter may have said in those moments, this is good, isn't it? Don't you think? I think he did. You know, maybe not, but I think he did. So verse 32, and he says, this Jesus, you see how he comes back to Jesus? So he starts with him in verse 22, but he comes back. And he says, this Jesus, this one, God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. Now, I think that we all are witnesses is me, Peter, and these 11 guys. We are witnesses to that truth that Jesus was raised. But the truth is, some in that audience, they were witnesses too. They had seen Jesus before he died. They knew that he died or saw him die. And they saw him after he rose. Some in that audience, they too were witnesses. They had seen it. And Peter says, that's why we're here and that's what we're testifying to you today. Jesus is alive. Now, in some respects, don't you think that's, that's pretty good? I mean, just to get them from, from where they are, right? From This is the mighty work of God on this day and Jesus is Messiah. He's raised and we're witnesses to that. That's pretty good. Peter doesn't stop there. I want you to notice where Peter goes. He gives us a third Old Testament text, or kind of an allusion to it, all right? Um, there's an allusion to Psalm 132, and he's going to quote Psalm 110 here in a minute. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, who poured him out? Jesus, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Listen to me. Do you see where Peter started? He started with the promise of who? God. And if you call out to him, he will save you. But look at where he brought us. He brings us to Jesus as the one who is giving pouring out the Spirit of God. God has fulfilled the promise. He gives this power and control to Jesus, and Jesus pours out the Spirit on these men on this day. 
that connection is critical. You see how Peter's worked him to it? Look, look at verse 34. He goes on and he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens. Again, Psalm 110 is a psalm by David. It's ascribed to David. And he says, David says there, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, your footstool. Now, here's what's interesting. If you recall back to our study through Hebrews, what's one of the author of Hebrews, what's one of his favorite texts? Psalm 110 verse 1. You see that connection? Jesus is the fulfillment of all God promised about Messiah. Now, he doesn't necessarily fulfill all that Messiah will do at his first coming, but he is everything Messiah was supposed to be. And this, for Peter, is the proof. So we go from the pouring out of the Spirit to the resurrection of Jesus, to the ascension of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, right? In verses 34 and 35. And then Peter brings home the message. Here it is. Here's the application audience. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, fourth description, fourth time, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, and this is his concluding statement, whom you crucified. You killed this Jesus. You killed the Lord. You killed the Messiah. This is who Jesus really is. Do you understand that today? Do you understand who Jesus really is? Do you understand what Jesus came to truly accomplish? Do you understand that he did accomplish it? Jesus did everything he came to do in his first advent. Everything. He fulfilled it. And when he was done, he was exalted and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. This exalted position. Peter concludes with this. And you know what he's saying to us? Jesus is God. Jesus is the divine one through whom you can call out today and be saved. Verse 21, right? He is the means, the only means through which we can be rescued. So what I want you to observe today is a couple of things. Number one, the way Peter employs Scripture, the way he takes the Scripture and explains it in such a way that he connects the dots for people whose expectation about Messiah was misguided and broken, and for some, they were horribly disappointed because Messiah wasn't at all what they thought he'd be. Folks, remember, even at the beginning of Acts, the disciples say, hey, are you going to set up the kingdom now? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It, it's not time for that. And it's not even your business to know the time or the seasons. You just be faithful. And then he gives them that key verse. You're going to be witnesses to me, verse 8. So even the disciples, as Jesus is ascending, they're still asking what? What about the kingdom? Peter now, he gets it. 
And he understands it in such a way that he can explain it to this Jewish audience. And folks, what I want you to observe is many times the gospel, the book of Acts, I told you I was going to call it a gospel. The book of Acts is thought to be the Gentile mission. But what I want you to observe is look who Peter's preaching to. He never says one time, hey, and for all you Gentiles, he doesn't do that. We'll get there. But he doesn't do that here. Who's he appealing to? The house of Israel. Brothers. Men of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen. Please. Hear me. Do you understand who Jesus is? God declares that he's Lord and Messiah. Do you believe that? Do you genuinely believe that today? That is the truth Peter declares to this audience. Do you see the connection? Do you see the way Peter brings us through and explains that reality? Do you understand that Jesus is absolutely the divine Son of God? He is Lord and Messiah, and that He alone can provide you salvation. You can be rescued from your sin today through Jesus alone. He is our hope. He alone is our hope. Peter addresses this audience specifically numerous times for this reason. He wants them to see the connection. He wants them to understand all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And he brings this Jewish audience largely to this unmistakable conclusion You can't walk away from Peter's message and say, I'm not sure what he was trying to say. Peter's big idea is God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, Messiah. You, You can't miss that. That is the truth he's trying to communicate. Do we understand that truth today? Is that truth transforming, shaping the way that we live? reality is today, because Jesus is Lord and Messiah, you and I must trust him alone to save us from our sins. Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus alone? Listen to me. I am not asking you today if you've prayed. I'm not asking you if you've grown up in church. I'm not asking you if you faithfully attended. Listen to me. I'm asking you, do you believe what Peter declares to this audience? Jesus is Lord, and he is Messiah, and hope is found in him alone. That's it. Jesus is my hope. Do you believe that? That's Peter's message. If you have never accepted that truth, if you've never responded in faith, you can today. Do it today. Don't wait. There's a marvelous quote in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He says this in regards to Jesus, and many of you have probably heard it before. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman, or or maybe even something worse. You can shut him up for 
being a devil, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, which is Peter's invitation. But don't come up with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that alternative open to us. He did not intend to leave that open to us. Very simply today, the truth is this. Do you genuinely believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you genuinely believe that he alone can save you from your sin? If you have, have you acknowledged that? Have you called out and said, Lord, I know I can't save myself. I need you to save me. Will you rescue me from my sin? This is what turning to Jesus is all about. If you're a believer today, are you living? Are you living as if Jesus is Lord? Are you living with the knowledge that he is Messiah? He has rescued you. Are you living your life as he directs, as he guides? Are you living in submission to his word, his plan for you? This is the call. Whether we know him or don't, the application is similar for us. We have to live in light of him being Lord. Do we live like that? Do you live like that every day? If you don't know him today, you can. If you've never accepted this truth today, you can. And I would plead with you, don't wait. If you know him, are you living your life in glad submission to him as Lord.